Five years ago, New Yorker Jeffrey Amura got a credit card in the mail in his name from Best Buy, which he hadn't applied for. And so he called him up. And they said, well, someone applied for it at a Best Buy in New Jersey under your name with all of your information, including your social security number. And that's when he realized he was the victim of identity theft. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. Since Equifax was compromised, we've been wondering just why we use our social security numbers for so much anyway. If somebody gets a hold of yours, things can get bad fast. And we will get to that in a little bit and the rest of Jeffrey Amaro's story. But we're going to start with Irma, Harvey, and their catastrophic cousins. It's no secret that recovering from disaster takes a lot of time and a lot of money. The federal government says Hurricane Katrina cost about $160 billion in damages. For Harvey, experts predict somewhere between $150 to $180 billion. But what about rebuilding? And what about preparing for the next disaster? Our current paradigm is based on our historical experience with disasters. Unfortunately, because of increased population, development along our coasts, we're seeing far greater cost in our disaster recovery Alice Hill is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Before that, she was with the Homeland Security Department and served on President Obama's National Security Council. She's thought a lot about how to rebuild after disasters. And right now, most experts say $1 of disaster prevention saves about $4 on cleanup and recovery. So I asked Hill whether and how we should realign our priorities. Well, that's the challenge. Because as you've alluded to, uh, when we have a bad event, it's very emotional for all of us. Of course, uh, we want to help our fellow citizens, and we want to make sure everyone's safe. The problem is that we end up rewarding communities uh, in some instances for not taking the necessary precautions in advance. For example, by having stricter building codes, limits on development in floodplains, those kinds of steps can help reduce the damage from future disasters. It doesn't prevent the extreme weather, but it just makes us more resilient to those impacts. How do we think about who pays for all of this? I mean, right now, you know, FEMA gives out some disaster preparedness grants that those pale in comparison to emergency relief funding. But, you know, does that mean that rich homeowners are going to be better prepared for some sort of scary event than than someone who's less well off? Uh, Absolutely. Our most vulnerable communities are the ones that feel these impacts often the greatest. They are living in housing that uh, may not have the kind of resilient measures that a uh, more expensive home would have. But if we require it in our building codes, that should ensure that there's a base level of resiliency The question as to who pays after these disasters is what I guess used to be the $64,000 question, and now it's probably the $64 billion or more question. The issue is uh, if a community decides not to have strong building codes and they are hit with uh, accelerating events, which we are seeing as a result of a warming climate, then the question becomes uh, who pays for that decision if the House doesn't withstand it? Right now, our paradigm is that if the event is truly uh, catastrophic, uh, the federal taxpayers pay. 
it's been argued uh, that perhaps we need a new paradigm that would require uh, essentially that any community that takes money in the face of these very challenging circumstances builds back better for the future. One of the things that I remember being struck by when I covered the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina was some of the rules that governed how federal money could be spent. For example, you know, FEMA funds couldn't be used to improve something, uh, only to make it really what it was prior to the storm. What would you change in the rules that, that dictate how we prepare for disasters and how we spend money at the federal level? One of the clear things that we can do going forward is uh, commit as a nation that we are going to rebuild better so that we are prepared for the events that the science tells us will reasonably occur in the foreseeable future. Our typical infrastructure could last 100 years. Right here in Washington, D.C., we have drainage pipes that date from the Civil War. I have to say kudos to those civil engineers that they're still in operation. But as we replace those over time, we need to be mindful that here in Washington, D.C., we will see increased precipitation as a result of warming temperatures, and we need to build those bigger and also plan that they might be in use 100 years, and that would be a good use of our money if they were. If I want to spin this out to sort of its most extreme conclusion, does that mean then that let's say I want to build a house on the coast in Georgia or Louisiana, can the government say, no, you can't do that? It's it's just too dangerous? I'm not proposing that we get involved in individual zoning uh, decisions. The zoning decisions are made on the local level. That is not a federal, uh, typically a federal matter. What I am suggesting is if you take federal money to build that house or you want a subsidy to purchase federal insurance, which is often what happens or frequently happens in the United States, you need to build resiliently. And if you're taking taxpayer money to uh, make that choice, uh, I think the taxpayers can demand that that investment uh, be resilient. I guess what I keep coming back to, and and maybe this is me being dense, or maybe it's something fundamentally human about not thinking disaster is going to strike, why do we keep doing the same thing over and over again when the costs are so clearly piling up? We have a, a huge range of challenges here. The incentives aren't completely aligned. Home builders will tell you that they're interest is providing homes uh, as cheaply as possible to increase home ownership. Of course, if you want to do that, uh, you will find that it's cheaper to build if you don't build to a higher standard or a stricter uh, building code. It may be a modest increase to accomplish that, but uh, even uh, a simple nail uh, that's costs about $15 per roof. Uh, home builders have opposed that in high wind areas just simply for that cost. So we see that their incentives are misaligned. I mean, do, do they have an argument? You know, in Florida, some of the home builders are saying, well, but that's going to hurt the affordable housing stock. You know, in ancient times, uh, the first building code, they said basically it was penalty of death if the house failed. For the home builder, certainly we don't want that, but we have to find a way to say, uh, we need to insist on higher standards to protect those who are going to have to help in recovery. We have done a really remarkable job in 
protecting life uh, through building codes, and that is uh, something that we should applaud. As tragic as it is to see any loss of life in any of these events, that is greatly reduced uh, from what you would expect. But what we are seeing is greater increases in the cost uh, damages, both in disruption costs in terms of businesses, it's slower for them to get back up, as well as uh, just the cost of repair and, and restoring. So the, the issue is, who's going to pay? And that, I think, is the fundamental question that all of us need to be fully engaged upon as we talk about what recovery looks like for these types of events. Alice Hill is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Thank you. Thank you. the show, we like numbers. They're our thing. And this includes how we digest the world's comings and goings. So to help with this week's news by the numbers, we have Marketplace producers Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez. Tony, all yours. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is 10. That's how many years we've been hearing about new iPhones. On Tuesday, Apple unveiled two new generations, the 8 and the X, the 10. The 10 will unlock with face recognition. No more thumbprints. But at the press demonstration, the phone wouldn't recognize the Apple exec who tried to unlock it, and he had to switch to a backup phone to get the thing to work. Don't you hate it when that happens? Yep. Apple says the new system is more secure than a fingerprint, and the cutting-edge security comes at a cost. The new iPhone started at 1000 bucks. Eighty-one cents. That's what women make for every dollar men earned last year, according to new data from the Census Bureau. It's about one cent more than in 2015. Not great, but it's the first time the gender pay gap has narrowed significantly since the recession. Still pretty far from where it needs to be. 22.2 million. That's the number of people 18 and up that research firm eMarketer predicts will drop their cable this year. Because of those cord cutters, the firm is adjusting its predictions for television ad spending from $72 billion to $71 billion. Sarah, when was the last time you watched cable? At my doctor's office? Yeah. Maybe? Costs like 10 iPhones. Dude, yeah. I don't even have a TV. In addition to looking at the news by the numbers, we like to hear your thoughts on what we cover on this show. Last week, we heard from Antoine Munoz. He's about to open his own cafe in New York, and he's a DACA recipient. On Facebook, Sally Ray Lord said, I enjoyed hearing this young man tell his story. I wish nothing but the best for his family. We also talked about the cost of giving birth. Kristen Ta commented, With my first unplanned child, I spent $3,000. With my next two kids, I planned ahead and had better insurance, so my cost was $150 each. Robin Bickner-Molina had another take. Has anyone ever considered the costs of pregnancy on the women's body down the road? Obesity, bladder relapses, uterus issues. Sounds like something else for us to look into. If you have questions or comments for us, get in touch. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Marketplace, WKND, or sign up for our newsletter. Just go to Marketplace.org for details. 
On the evening of October 15, 1997, a rocket took off from Cape Canaveral. T-minus 15 seconds. T-minus 10. 9. 8. 7. That spacecraft, the Cassini, would take seven years to reach its destination, Saturn. Cassini completely blew our mind. Jim Green is the director of planetary science for NASA. The observations that are being uh, made by Cassini uh, tells us much more about the moons and how they potentially could harbor life. Uh, This is just tremendously exciting. It it was completely unexpected, and it really took the Cassini spacecraft to be able to uncover that. On Friday morning, Cassini took its final plunge into Saturn's atmosphere, gathering data until the very last moment. For Jim Green and the roughly 250 people who worked on Cassini, they're saying goodbye to a project that could be older than their kids, which is not easy. You know, we've sent Cassini into the unknown, and it has really surprised us. And now, with the death of Cassini, you know, with its plunge, Cassini is sending our people into the unknown. What will they do next? All right. But here's what it's also done. It has really prepared them. It has, they have developed incredibly important skills to uh, build missions that are resilient, to understand orbital changes and trajectories, to be able to make new and unique scientific measurements, to know what the next set of measurements are, to begin to plan the next set of missions. So Cassini has developed a workforce that is just so important to planetary science. When you look at the price tag for Cassini, some $3.26 billion, you know, that, that is over the course of its lifetime. Um, how does that money break out? You know, construction or fuel or all of those things. Where'd the money go? The largest amount of uh, aspect of that is really building the mission. Okay. Uh, it's really all about the structure, the fuel, uh, the, the mission planning that goes with that. You know, operationally, Cassini was running around $50 million per year. Wow. Uh, and so you can see that the the major cost is uh, is really the upfront upfront development and and building and, and and then of course the launch. You know when you hear somebody say ah, three billion dollars that's a lot of money for space exploration we could spend it in other ways we could do other things with it I imagine people say that to you or you think about that what is your response? Well, as a, uh, let me just go back to what we call uh, comparative planetology. You know, um, a, a, a lot of what we learn about Venus, we've applied to Earth. Some of the original research on why doesn't Venus have much of an ozone? You know, we spent time in research and discovered that it was the chlorine. And then we found in the 80s that the Earth was losing its ozone. They turned immediately to research that was done by planetary scientists and recognized that the culprit, once again, is chlorine, and it's coming from CFCs. But that, once again, is the important part about comparative uh, planetology, and we must continue to do that. I firmly believe the survival of our species depends on us doing that. It also sounds like you're making an argument that science, really for the sake of science, deserves federal funding. Well, uh, indeed, um, uh, we are an inquisitive people, and it's really uh, – 
wonderful to live in a country where the population really appreciates the science that we are doing. Well, the American public is certainly supportive of that, but but do you see that uh, with congressional appropriators? Uh, do, do you see that, for example, with the budget blueprint coming from this administration? So this administration's been very supportive of planetary science, yeah. and and the Congress has also been very supportive of planetary science. You got um, a boost you know, in your last budget. Yeah, we did. I'm not <laughs> sending that back to the Treasury. <laughs> One of the things that you have talked about is the question of a, a human mission to Mars, um, hopefully but by 2030. What would that cost? So um, – how going to Mars is is accomplished in NASA is um, uh, uh, perhaps not well known, but it, it's really pretty easy. And that is, um, uh, human exploration is not Star Trek. Okay, it's not go where no human has gone before, and so that means before humans go to Mars, we must really understand that environment. We must understand uh, the resources that are available. We must. Uh, pick the right location. We must be able to uh, really uh, study what happens in temperature pressure variations, uh, the dust environment, uh, what's toxic, what's not, where we can get access to water, and the kind of resources necessary that we would use even in 3D printing that could help uh, survive on, on the surface of Mars. Now, that means we've been over the last several decades uh, with a with a well thought out plan and series of missions that have made enormous progress in our understanding of Mars. We are probably at about an eighty to eighty five percent level of knowing everything we need to know about Mars before humans go. So as we get down to the end of this next decade, in the twenty thirties, we will be ready for humans to follow. Now, it's another part of uh, NASA that is indeed the human exploration part of NASA that is putting together the program that will indeed uh, put humans down on Mars. And so we are the pioneers. We're leading the way. But um, in terms of cost, what's critical to understand is the, the better we do our job, the better we're able to use the resources that are available there and the lower the cost it will be because we won't need to take everything with us. I know i got to let you go, but I just have one question. Was there one thing, I don't know, something from Cassini that really blew your mind and surprised you? Well, it's not one thing. I mean, you'd think it was one thing, but it's just one thing after another. I mean, <laughs> it's just phenomenal. Uh, there are some earth-shattering discoveries, you know, such as, you know, Enceladus, which we thought was just a big icy ball. Saturn is 10 astronomical units away from the sun. That's 10 times our distance from the sun, away from the sun. Out there, any water ought to be frozen like an ice cube, okay? And yet here is a small moon that's spewing out geysers of water coming from an under-ice-crust ocean of liquid water. Unbelievable. Who would have thought? Jim Green, Director of Planetary Science for NASA, thank you so much. My pleasure. 
If you want to see some really cool pictures of Saturn that Cassini took, plus learn a little bit more about the mission, just check out our website, marketplace.org. Staying with space and things that sound almost too sci-fi to be real, asteroid mining and the money to be made from it. Yeah, you heard me right. Asteroids. Marketplace tech host Molly Wood has been looking into this. Hey, Molly. Hi, Lizzie. How are you? Okay, what is asteroid mining? That just does not sound real. (laughs) I know. It sounds so sci-fi, and I think that's part of my obsession with it, because It is completely real. Uh, Obviously, people have been hunting for valuable minerals on Earth for centuries. But it turns out that asteroids, the rocky bodies that orbit the sun, actually contain all kinds of rare and really, really valuable elements and metals, nickel, platinum, gold, and, of course, water. So there is a, a move afoot, increasingly technology afoot, to try to mine these asteroids and either bring the minerals and metals out and bring them back to Earth or mine them in place and use them to help construct future space habitats. Wow. Um, the business is working <laughs> it's on all this. true. Like, yeah. But well, well, this, I guess, is the, the, sort of the, the follow-on question. So the businesses working on this are real? The businesses working on this are real. There's one company uh, at least hoping to mine these asteroids, a startup called Planetary Resources, and it has uh, funding from very well-known backers like Google's Larry Page, Richard Branson of Virgin Group. And in fact, you're seeing, you know, pretty big names. You're seeing uh, down-to-earth companies like the construction equipment company Caterpillar, which is interested in developing technology that it could use here on Earth, but also that could eventually be used to help mine hazardous conditions like asteroids. Here's Eric Reiners. He works for Caterpillar. We have done some past work with NASA uh, at Johnson Space Center involving remote control and automation uh, technologies. Those technologies have moved forward to actual product uh, where we can do remote operation of, of large dozers and even do that over long distances. Now, obviously, when he says dozers, he means bulldozers. And Caterpillar oh. is, is trying to create these bulldozers that don't necessarily need people at the helm that could be controlled remotely, perhaps even from Earth while they're mining on an asteroid. And I should point out that by some estimates, some of the, the metals on even one of these asteroids could be worth in the trillions of dollars. Okay, so that that helps me understand the business incentive here. Um On Marketplace Tech, you have been looking, obviously, not just at asteroid mining, but really at the economics of space overall. Uh, Tell me what you're looking at and what you found. Yeah, I think, you know, it's easy to uh, it's easy for me to get mocked as being a giant space nerd. But the fact is that as we continue to explore space, it is going to create a new economy that goes with it. There are going to be tons of jobs. There are already companies that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on space-related activities. These are satellite companies, rocket companies, government entities like NOAA. Uh, we're going to look at all of it and, and examine how it affects life here on Earth and, and maybe our future lives in the stars. Molly Wood, host of Marketplace Tech. It is always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Lizzie.
there is a company whose stock has gone up 130% this year. It is beloved by millennials, and it makes water. Soda water that comes in a bunch of flavors, coconut, pomplamoose, mango, and passion fruit, just some of the choices. This week, LaCroix Water got the Wall Street Journal front page treatment from reporter Rob Copeland. His favorite flavor is apricot, by the way. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Because I have to do this because it's the radio, I'm going to open um, the cans of La Croix, La Croix. I know what it's called. But I still always call it La Croix. Hang on. So I have cran raspberry and peach pear with me in the studio. Those are two middle of the road choices. Those are those are really? totally respectable. Yep. Totally okay, fine. Um, and I just tasted the peach pear. You wrote about this. The company says it is essenced with flavor, ignoring the fact that essence is not a verb. Uh, what is essence? Well, that's the, that's the billion-dollar question here, right? LaCroix is one of the hottest companies uh, on Wall Street or elsewhere. The stock is up 130% this year, which is pretty insane. And that's because they make a sparkling water that its fans believe is special and is totally different from the water that you can get out of your tap and uh, you know put some bubbles in with a soda stream or whatever have you. So essence is the flavor. It's a natural flavoring, but LaCroix will not tell you what it is. So it's it's just some kind of natural flavor. I mean, they have all of these crazy flavors: pomplamousse, uh, grapefruit to normal people uh, who don't speak French, um, coconut. I don't really like the coconut, but yeah, essence is is the thing in all of these. So essence is actually a one hundred year old additive. It's in uh, products as varied as uh, as bug spray, as coffee, as gelatin. It's really just a highly concentrated chemical that you get by heating up uh, fruit, adding a little bit of alcohol. You get a little vapor come off it. You condense the vapor, and that's it. It's just a clear, super concentrated chemical. Wow. So I remember drinking LaCroix when I was a kid uh, in northern Michigan. This was just like a Midwestern thing that you got in the supermarket, no big deal. And then all of a sudden, it is everywhere uh, around where I live in Brooklyn. And I feel like all of my colleagues, and I hate to say this, but particularly my millennial colleagues are in love with it. How did this happen? It is it is everything. So LaCroix has been around for decades and it was relaunched about six years ago by this publicly traded company. And what they did was they rolled it out in new cans. And then instead of marketing it in a traditional way, instead of signing up celebrity pitch people, they really just started sharing pictures of largely very attractive young women posing with the cans. They made it into something that was cool, that was a fashion accessory, and it's been hugely successful. I go by the rapidly gentrifying bodega in my neighborhood, and it has now got like a Tetris wall of different flavors of LaCroix there. I mean, it sounds like this company knows exactly who their target audience is. They absolutely do. It's not a cheap product, first of all. A 12-pack by me in, in New York is about over $5. So that's actually more expensive than, than Coca-Cola. And what they've really figured out, too, is you don't just have one of them. I spoke to people who have as many as 10 a day. This is their entire water consumption. You mentioned the stock is up 130-some uh, percent this year. It's got the great ticker fizz. 
Does this company have more room to run? Well, there have been a lot of short sellers who have said that this is wildly overvalued. And frankly, they've been carried out on a stretcher. I mean, the stock is is shot up. It's it's about a five to six billion dollar market cap. So that's not so big if you compare it to Coca-Cola or Pepsi. The thing is, they don't really have another successful product. They make something called Shasta Cola, which is significantly less oh, cool. Yeah. So if LaCroix is a fad, then there really is not much in Viz. Rob Copeland, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much. Thank you. If you spent some time this week trying to figure out if you were affected by the Equifax breach, you're not alone. Roughly 143 million people's information may have been compromised. So we're going to spend some time on ID theft. I'm Jeffrey O'Mara. I'm here in Manhattan. I'm an actor. I've lived here for 10 years. And about five years ago, I was the victim of identity theft. It all started when he got an envelope in the mail from Best Buy. And there was a credit card inside in his name, which he hadn't applied for. So Amur calls him up. And they said, well, someone applied for it um, at a Best Buy in New Jersey um, under your name with all of your information, including your Social Security number. And they bought a TV at the cash register in this Best Buy in New Jersey, which is strange since I live in Manhattan. Amur says, whoa, convinces them it wasn't him. They agree to wipe it from his name. I said, great, thank you. And they say, go file a police report. And he tries, but his local precinct won't file the report because his money was reimbursed, no crime to solve. And I was thinking, well, of course there's a crime to solve. The perpetrator's still on the loose out there, and there's probably video footage of him checking out at at this Best Buy in New Jersey. But they didn't want to go down that route. Fast forward a few weeks and Jeffrey Amura's phone rings. It's Chase Bank and they say someone tried to take $2,000 from his account but didn't know the account number. So they turned him away. I'm thinking this must be the same guy who opened up the credit card. And now I'm starting to get a little freaked out because he knows, he knows way too much about me. So he runs to his local Chase to sort things out. And while he's there, someone tries to withdraw money at six different branches. On the seventh time, he changed his tactics, and he wrote a check to my name and was able to cash it and actually withdrew $2,000 from my checking account. So Chase sorts it out, reimburses Amura, changes his various numbers. All my money's safe so far. A month and a half later, another phone call. You can see where this is going. This time, it's Verizon. They say his bill for his new account is due. Omura explains what's going on. And they said, well, we can't close this account until you file a police report and send us that documentation so that we know that this was a crime. Otherwise, you will be held accountable for this $1,400 charge on this, on this brand new Verizon account. Ah, uh, yes. Remember the police report? No, I don't have a police report because I tried to make a police report and the NYPD turned me away. He goes back and a detective says they can't just give him a report. Once a report's filed, they're obligated to try to solve it. Seems like a pretty good policy. In this particular situation, I didn't need them to solve the crime. I really just needed the paperwork so I could fax it into Verizon 
close that account and make sure I was not liable for this $1,400 charge. The detective says, fine, we'll get a report, but we need to investigate first. Probably about two months later, he finally calls me back and says, we've closed the case. We have not solved the case, but here's your police report. He sends it to Verizon, gets his money back, and yes, it's over. Omar now has extra security on everything. His bank accounts, tax returns, no problem since. But if all this trouble can happen if someone nabs your social security number, why are those nine numbers tied to everything? Because big, bad, and in some cases lazy businesses hijacked it. That's Neil O'Farrell, head of the Identity Theft Council. He says that since the U.S. doesn't have a national ID... And because it was really the only universal individual identifier, in particularly in the United States, it became quickly hijacked by the financial community as a way to determine who you are and therefore what your credit history is like. But nowadays we have data breach after data breach, which means your social may not be secret. The financial industry particularly has always regarded identity theft as a cost of doing business. New technology could be a game changer, from fingerprints to facial scans, biometric technology sits in our pockets, on our phones. Hi, Apple, looking at you. And surrounds us every day. I think the changes in the future will focus around stopping the thieves using stolen information less than stopping them from stealing it. To talk about that, we have Brian Ichikawa on the show. He's a biometrics expert who works with businesses and governments. What's a better way to identify ourselves instead of using a social security number? I'm sort of of the school, like, well, the fact that we have that SSN out there being used everywhere, that's sort of life, right? And, and you know, we can change that identifier, but all we've done is change the identifier. I think we need to move sort of beyond that and say we need to protect the infrastructure as a whole. Does having a conversation about using your fingerprint or retina scan or whatever it is, is that the conversation to to have? If we use a different identifier and then that gets compromised, then what? I mean, have we fixed anything? I don't think so. When you work with a company or a government, what do you tell them to do differently? There's a responsibility that corporations and government agencies have in protecting personal information. And uh, at, at the minimum, all that data should be highly encrypted. Now, there's a a layer of overhead, of cost, and that's probably the reason why it's not a ubiquitous practice. And so, you know, your your data has been compromised, um, and it's out there already. Well, so let's spend forward a few years. I mean, we're already seeing airlines and, say, the U.S. government uh, pilot some different programs where you can use biometrics at check-in or you can use your global entry card. Um are we are we moving toward a world where biometrics are more incorporated into what we do for security purposes, or is that just as vulnerable? If you can improve the way you authenticate yourself, if you can improve the way you say you can prove you are who you claim to be, that's going to help a lot. You know, I tell all my friends and family that whenever you have additional security features that are available to you, take advantage of them. Those are those are the little things that we as individuals can do to help make ourselves more secure. Who pays for all this? If a company has your information and they need to protect it, then they need to pay for the additional infrastructure associated with that. Now, 
how far do you carry that? For example, you know, let's say my bank wants to implement a additional security feature saying, you know, well, we can we can make this more secure by adding your fingerprint to this. Okay. Then who's going to pay for the fingerprint reader? So maybe right now that becomes an option. So me as as an individual may say, I will pay for that fingerprint reader. The bank pays for the infrastructure to make that reader work in their system. So we both pay for that, right? And and maybe if I'm a high-value customer, the bank goes, you know, we'll pay for that fingerprint reader because you have more assets, you have, you're have you a higher-value customer, and, and we'll, we'll cover that one for you. Does that risk exacerbating inequality where security becomes a luxury item? Well, I would hope not. I mean, security and privacy are almost rights, right, in, in today's world. You cannot have to be rich in order to be able to afford higher degrees of security or privacy. Brian Nichikawa, thank you so much for talking with us. You're very welcome. Like it or not, many of us spend a lot of time at our jobs, and work is its own weird universe, full of rules, both written and unwritten, which is why we bring on Allison Green, who runs the site Ask a Manager, to talk about life, work, and life at work. Welcome back, Allison. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So this month, we are talking about job searches, what's changed, what the new normal is, all of that. Um, From your end, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the past few years in terms of how people approach looking for a job? I think in terms of how things have changed, a big one that candidates need to brace themselves for is that hiring often takes a lot longer than it used to. And part of that is that there are often a lot more steps than there used to be. There's phone interviews before you meet in person. There's requests for presentations or take-home assignments. So it's smart to start early. If you know that you're going to need to be in a new job six months from now, start now. Let's think about sort of the building blocks of looking for a job. You know, the resume. How much does it still matter? And what's changed in terms of resumes in our very digital world? The conventions around resumes have changed a lot. If you remember that old-fashioned objective that everyone used to have at the top of their resumes, those are pretty outdated now. You don't see those much anymore. Same thing for that old-fashioned one-page rule. You used to be told that your resume would get thrown out if it were longer than a page, and that's really not true any longer. It's pretty common to see two-page resumes these days as as long as the person isn't right out of school. So there's been some some relaxing around that kind of thing. Um, I think, too, you used to see very wordy resumes with these big blocks of text, you want it to be easy to skim because hiring managers aren't going to read it word for word. They're going to skim. They're going to make a decision quickly. So you see a lot more bullet points and, and plenty of white space. All right. So you're, you're bringing me to our first listener question. Um, this is from Jordan Kirchhoff, and I'm going to just kind of let it play and we can talk about it. I've been job hunting recently, and I have one big issue I can't seem to get over. I've heard again and again, most systems only search through your resume for keywords that match the job requirements. If a real person looks at your resume at that point, it may only be for five or six seconds. That is a far cry from the days in which you could walk in and ask for the manager, look him or her in the eye, shake their hand, and really display enthusiasm for the job. Is there any way to recapture some measure of that old world human interaction in today's digital competition? Hmm. Okay, so I, w- I want to break this down a little bit. Uh, the first thing is sort of, is Jordan right? Like, are computers doing some of the, like, yes, 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 no heavy lifting here? Some of it. But it, I think if this people picture this as being 
a heavier part of the process than it is. It's true that a lot of employers do some automated screening at the start of the process. They might have a system that will automatically reject you if you don't meet certain requirements. Good hiring managers and good recruiters they're not relying on computers to do the bulk of the screening. It's, it's more of an aid in the process, but it's not the main thing driving the process, which is what I think people worry it could be. But if you're feeling sort of, I guess, disconnected from the screening process, how can you get more people to just look at you and evaluate you? I hear people talk about gimmicks all the time that they use to try to get their applications noticed and to try to stand out. The real way to do it is pretty boring. I mean, you stand out by having a resume that shows a strong track record of results in the area that they're hiring for and writing a compelling cover letter that explains why you'd excel at the job and being responsive and friendly when you're contacted. That's really it. It's, it's such a boring answer, but that is what good employers still do respond to. Is there any type of work where you can still do the kind of walk through the door, you know, maybe a first job, a, a retail job? Does that still work? Uh, in food service and retail work, sometimes you can apply in person, like if it's a small business. Um, for more office type jobs, no. I always hear from readers whose, whose parents haven't job searched in a long time and, and tell them that they need to go out and pound the pavement and hand out their resume in person because it'll show gumption. It, oh it doesn't God. really work anymore. sounds like anymore. my father. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is the parental advice. It, it doesn't work anymore. It comes across as annoying and naive because it's just not done. I want to move on to sort of some of the later stage process questions. So we had a listener who goes by AP who wrote this in. Any recommendations on dealing with the perennial, what do you make now from the HR screener? My instinct is to say, I don't think my current salary is relevant as this is a different position. Here's the range I'd be expecting given these job responsibilities. But taking this track, I was once accused of being uncooperative and told that all the other candidates revealed their current compensation. What are you trying to hide? Any suggestions? The best way to do it, if you if you can pull it off, is to answer the question that they should have asked you instead, which is what salary you are looking for now. So mm. they ask what you've been earning. You can say something like, you know, I'm looking for a salary in the range of X. A lot of interviewers will accept that and, and not keep pushing. Um, some people will keep pushing. And if you run into that, you can say, you know, I've always kept that confidential, but I'm seeking X. Or in a lot of cases, if you look at your old employee handbook, you're going to see that your company's salary structure is actually considered proprietary information. And so you can honestly say, you know, my employer considers their salary structure confidential, which can be hard to argue with. Um, but it, it's a bad question and it puts candidates at an unfair disadvantage. And I'm hoping we'll continue to see the tide turning against it. One of the last times we talked to you, we talked about dressing for work, um, dressing for interviews. How has that changed? Do you still wear a suit? I had an interview suit. Do I need one yeah. anymore? <laughs> Maybe. So it depends on your field. And to some extent, it can depend on your geographic area. More often than not, yes, you still need the interview suit. Um, but there are fields where it's really relaxed, parts of tech, parts of design. But even then, it can vary from region to region. So it's one where you really need to know your field and your area. But if you're not sure and you can't ask someone in your field, default to wearing the suit. We're, you know, almost 10 years out from the financial crisis, but a lot of people went through layoffs or underemployment or, you know, times in their professional life that they weren't happy about, that didn't feel good. How do you deal with that in a job search, either 
on a resume or saying to an employer, well, I wasn't working then, so I took a class or whatever it was. You know, how, how do you deal with those painful moments? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that there's sometimes people feel like there's going to be a stigma around that, that they were laid off or that they were unemployed or underemployed for a while. Your hiring manager, your interviewer is is human and has probably has loved ones who have gone through that or has gone through it themselves. I think there's not the kind of stigma around that that there used to be and that people fear, fear that there might still be. Um, so I think if you can be matter of fact about it, both in your own head as you're thinking about it, but also as you're talking about it, people will take their cues from you. So if you sound matter of fact and upbeat and, and not like you think it's something shameful, people are likely to, to respond accordingly. You can read more of Allison Green's workplace advice. Uh, you can just check out our website, marketplace.org. And if you have other questions for Allison, she's a regular guest for us. We are weekend at marketplace.org. Allison Green runs Ask a Manager. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up on the show next week. Like a little something sweet in your tea or maybe on your yogurt? We hear about the hidden costs of making honey. Because one bear is killed, oh, beekeepers are killing them all the time. It's simply not true. And you can listen back to some of our past shows. Just subscribe to the Marketplace Weekend podcast on Apple Podcasts or, you know, wherever you subscribe. Plus, leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen and Sean McHenry. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Ben Tolliday is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Sitara Nieves is Marketplace's executive producer. Deborah Clark is our vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.